Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to Silver Linings, part of the Next Real family of film podcasts on True Story FM. Have you ever liked or even loved a movie that everyone else just seems to hate? Well, you are not alone, my friend. We look at movies that are often panned by critics and audiences to see if their hate is warranted. Sure, we'll talk about what might be broken, 
But more important, we talk about what really works in these films with the hope that we change some minds along the way. Perhaps even yours? So, sit back, relax, and let's take the guilt out of guilty pleasures. This is Silver Linings. Hello, I'm Ray, your eternal optimist. And I'm Ocean. And on this episode of Silver Linings, we'll be taking a look at the 2003 blockbuster, Daredevil. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. I was 12 years old. I had lost my sight, but I got something back in return. My remaining four senses functioned with superhuman sharpness. I could hear a whisper a block away, but the most amazing of all was a kind of radar sense. Soon the world will know the truth. There is no proof that Daredevil even exists. That one man can make a difference. What do you want? Justice. So, for this episode, we have a very special guest with us. We brought in our local Evanescence aficionado and (laughs) co-host of the Marvel Movie Minute. Please welcome Mr. Kyle Olson. Just being on the show has woken me up inside. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy to be here because I really, I really have, I really have a strong strong connection to this movie in particular. I I saw it live in theaters and I've bought it many times on different formats as the years have gone by. All right. Well, way to jump ahead from the first question there, Kyle. Oh. Which was how, <laughs> how were you personally introduced to the film? So, I so, bought a ticket. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Kyle's already tipped his hand. So, I guess yeah. I'll go next. Uh, the way I was introduced to the film was uh, really the same way. I've uh, always been in comic bu- into comic book movies. And this was especially back at this time when there was a dearth of them. Um, I, you know, I saw the preview and knew immediately I would be checking it out in theaters. So, so I've, I saw it in theaters. I think I saw it twice. Um, but yeah, I saw it a couple times in theaters, and then uh, you know immediately bought the uh, DVD when it came out. Nice. You know, surprisingly, I did not see this one in theaters because, and I, I'm just shocked thinking about that because I was huge into comics. Daredevil was one of my favorites. I always played as him in the game Marvel Ultimate Alliance. Yes. You know, I, I subscribed. You had to work to, to get him comic. too. You did. You had to collect you the all action, action figures. figures. Yeah. And so and after I unlocked him, boy, you better believe I was always playing as That's Daredevil. Right. But uh, I actually didn't see this until my friend Andrew uh, recommended this to me. Uh, my friend Andrew actually has a podcast of his own called Zombie Apocalypse. Shout out. Uh, shout out. <laughs> but he introduced this to me, and I actually started out with the director's cut. It wasn't until... Uh, fairly recently that I watched the theatrical cut and the problematic things that that brings along with it. (laughs) (laughs) Which we'll talk about. Yes. Approximately when, like, uh, do you remember the year that you saw it? Uh, I would say 2005 or six. Oh, okay. Okay. So like fairly recently after it came out, not like, no, 2019. It was, uh, it was soon after the director's cut was released on DVD initially. Just real quick, how familiar are you guys with Daredevil from the comics? Just so that we have an understanding of who knows the history of the character. Well, my fam- just the movie. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in first. There, my familiarity with them deals uh, uh, revolves around uh, Frank Miller, 
And uh, so I initially saw that Frank Miller did it. When I was initially introduced to him was Frank Miller did a little miniseries like The Man Without Fear. And mm. that was the first Daredevil story that I read. Uh, I read a few comics here and there as well. I did not like them as much as anything Frank Miller did. So then I went back and read the Frank Miller written comics that he did. And so I saw that and made me familiar with this story. But, but my entire introduction was really just looking at those pieces and then after a while, you know, reading some of the other stories of Daredevil after that, but I mean, once you've had the Frank Miller version, the, the other comic <laughs> book stories aren't quite as good. Um, Ooh, but, there's yeah, those fighting words. Yeah, well, they're, they're just they're just not. I mean, Frank Miller's the man. Um, but uh, so yeah, but the uh, that was uh, so I was I was somewhat familiar with him, you know, at the time of the movie, uh, you know, but but like many people, you know, I guess my familiarity was more than most people. But you know, at, when this came sure. out, he was really just kind of known primarily as a name. He wasn't the the household, uh, you know, you could argue household name that he is now. Yeah. True. How about you, Kyle? He was actually the first superhero action figure I ever bought. Wow. Uh, be- and this goes way back to when I was a kid, kid. I guess when I say I bought it, it's just I convinced my mom to buy it because well, uh, sure. for those who are action figure collectors, you know what a peg warmer is. And so uh, Daredevil was in the Secret Wars line in like 85 or so, and he was a peg warmer. There were plenty of him on the aisles at, at, at Toys R Us. And so I actually got him. And I really didn't know who he was because I only read a couple of comics at that time. And I just remember just being endlessly making fun of the fact that he just had a stick. Like, his special accessory in The Secret Wars was just a little gray stick. And I was like, you can't... Aha, take that, Doctor Doom. I brought my stick. Okay. Well, now, as you've seen the movie, you know what it actually is. It's really, really cool. But at the time, as an action figure accessory, pretty boring. Uh, but then, uh, I so I read a bunch of Marvel comics, but I never read Frank Miller's run. I never, But because Daredevil showed up in everything, I sort of knew what the story was because they're very good at cross-promoting. Stan Lee was an, a master at that of like going, oh, uh, you'll find out what happened to Elektra if you read. You know, they'll actually have the little bubble at the bottom. Mm, but it wasn't yeah. until Brian Bendis' run that I actually got into Daredevil and understood him when he did his whole thing about Daredevil got his, uh, the Kingpin finally gave up the secret identity. So basically Daredevil was now out. Everyone knew it was Matt Murdock and, and what that meant and, and how it reflected in all of his villains and all the people who supported him and everything, like the huge ripples in, through his life. And Michael Lark did a bunch of that art. It was amazing. And I have that whole run in hardcover. I mean, that's my favorite Daredevil run. And then afterwards, everybody after that sort of was, it got sort of lesser and lesser. <laughs> like, like the next person who took over, I think was, um, well, I can't even remember now. Uh, but everyone took over was sort of like, oh, yeah, it's, that's all right. And then the next person take over and you go, yeah, okay, that's pretty good. And then like it sort of like went down and I just gave up on it. Until Mark Wade. And then Mark Wade did a fantastic run on Daredevil for a couple of years. And that was really good. And now, uh, now actually it's come back around again. So now it's, it, Daredevil is this sort of like, um, he, he's, a, he's a guy that gets knocked down. And then he gets back up again. That's, you know, like he learned that from his dad. But that's the way with his comic, too. His comic is terrible for a while, and all of a sudden, somebody else will come in, give him a lot of love, and it'll be fantastic again. So Chip Zdarsky is writing it currently, and it's really, really good. Uh, so wait till that run ends, and then watch him get knocked down again. But, so, yeah, so I had, I had high expectations going in uh, to watch it because that was right in the middle of that sort of run. Very nice. Yeah, I... Uh- my introduction to the character of Daredevil was through the cartoons and the games. Oh. I think I actually first saw him in the 90s Spider-Man cartoon yes. where he made a, uh, an appearance. And then 
when I was in the later years of high school and then going into college, I was hanging out at comic book shops a lot. So I would pick up old back issues of Daredevil and other heroes and eventually started subscribing to Daredevil back in 2007. I don't anymore Mm -hmm. because that stuff gets expensive. Yeah. I'm pretty much a trade only and only on comiXology. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess it's fair to say we're all pretty knowledgeable about the character. Ocean. Well, we are now. Let's get into the movie. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So, yeah, let me get into the critical consensus. I don't like being touched. Why don't you tell me what you do like? We'll start there. Okay, so the critical consensus, I uh, will uh, start off with the Rotten Tomatoes recap, which is always my favorite way to describe a movie. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes recap has, uh, says that while Ben Affleck fits the role and the story is sporadically interesting, Daredevil is ultimately a dull, brooding origin story that fails to bring anything new to the genre. And so the... Uh, and that's kind of made up of some, you know, there's some good reviews and bad reviews. So I'll start with uh, the good reviews. So Richard Roper of Ebert and Roper fame said that uh, Daredevil has electric energy, a wickedly dark sense of humor, some ingenious fight scenes, and that high-powered cast. The Washington Post has a good review, which only sounds backhandedly good, which is it's perfectly satisfactory without being deeply satisfying. So, but they, but that was the positive review. And so, um, looking at some of the negative reviews, uh, reactions that you got from them uh, from this movie was, you know, Newsweek says that it was a uh, torn between moody grandiosity and cartoonish mayhem. Daredevil tries to have it both ways and succeeds at neither. <laughs> and uh, the Sydney oh, Morning Herald that was well written. That's a good yeah, yeah, yes, yes. And the uh, Sydney Morning Herald has a similar theme, uh, where it says Johnson hasn't decided if he's making an exuberant action movie or a drama and veers awkwardly between the two. Um, mm. So I think that what you're really seeing there is that, you know, that the consensus seems to be that they were maybe expecting something different than what they had or uh, were, you know, still, because this is the infancy of the uh, Mar- Marvel movies. I mean, even the, even up to and including the, at the very beginning of it, it's the first time you see what is now the very famous, you know, the Marvel crawl that, you know, the Marvel studios icon and logo you see with the turning of the pages and the different right. characters. Mm-hmm. This was the first movie to do the, you know, the first version of that. Right. And so you could see, I think that it was, um, you know, it's that early in the, in the process. I think that this movie still being compared, you know, to, uh, you know, everything's being compared to Batman at that time. Cause you know, Batman 1989 is still, the king of the comic book movies. And so I think that they, uh, the critics look for these things, at least what I'm reading between lines with these are that they expected it either to be super serious or super campy. And they did not find it to be either. Sure. Did you guys, uh, speaking of reviews, did you happen to see what Stan Lee had to say <laughs> about the movie? It, despite making a cameo, I believe he was not a fan of the finished product. Yeah, I, I did not. What did Stan the man have to say? He had two words. Too tragic. (laughs) And, you know, thinking about the history of the character in the comics, the Stan Lee era, totally too tragic because that wasn't Stan's game. But if you look at the more modern era of the character, it fits. It it does. And I'm surprised by that. I mean, Daredevil is a tragic character, right? You you know, I mean, his whole, even the beginnings of him with having it where he's, 
you know, really he gets his abilities from an accident that blinds him for life. And, you know, he, which, which that accident happens directly after seeing his father do the worst thing that he thinks he can see his dad do. Right. So you're, you're already starting with tragedy and th then you layer on the death of his father and then he's, you know, growing up blind in an orphanage. And so, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a lot here. There's a lot of reasons for therapy here. Uh, yeah. So I, I really think that he already is a tragic character and that, you know, the movie really leaned a little bit into that. Right. And you know something, Moon Knight always gets compared mm. to Batman, but I would say that Daredevil might be a closer representation to that type of character than Moon Knight. I mean, I think there are more parallels between Daredevil and Batman than Moon Knight. Yeah, you but, could easily have seen Bruce Wayne deciding to go to law school to try and help people. I mean, you know, it's it's that that is, would be a perfectly reasonable Batman reboot. Right. And also, Frank Miller, the two characters he's most associated with are Daredevil and <laughs> Batman. Batman. So I mean, like he went one from one right to the other. Pretty pretty smooth transition, I would yeah. say. Yeah. So well, Batman would have bought the law school. <laughs> he probably would have gone to the Wayne family exactly. school of law. He would have just purchased it and been like, I believe I get my law degree now. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> so let's go ahead and address some of these criticisms. And one thing that I, I think that we should address is that most, if not all of these criticisms were directed at the theatrical version of this movie. And in 2004, the director's cut was released on DVD. It's a half hour longer. It's the version that the director, Mark Steven Johnson, wanted to have originally. And so uh, they are really, really different. And so if the director's cut version is the one that had gone out initially, I doubt that it would have received as much negative, uh, as much criticism. But let's go ahead and address some of these. So a lot of the criticism came down to people thinking that the movie lacked story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that there's some of that as um, holistically as far as the, the story itself, because it is it's kind of an origin story without an origin. Right. Like he's he. One of the things I do like about the movie is that when the movie starts, he already is Daredevil. I agree. Right? But but they do, you know, with with the flashback sequences, they go back to his childhood and try to start explaining kind of where he came from, you know, as far as what he went through to get to be where he is now. But uh, at the same time, him already starting there uh, is, I, I think, it actually, it actually helps and aids the story. But from there and beyond there, you know, I mean, we can talk about the different beats of the story, which we definitely should do. Um, but I think that the overarching story is, 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 it really is a good one, especially given that the part of the focus of this movie or goal must have had to have been to introduce this character to a large audience, you know, because mm -hmm. at the time, many people didn't know who Daredevil was. And so you need to have a good, nice, safe, you know, safe movie here to, to hopefully get a great mass appeal. So you could then eventually make uh, the sequels. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> the, I think that the, what suffers the most is that you end up only seeing Matt Murdock as just a guy. And then he's daredevil. What they cut yes. most of was the lawyer part of it. So it's sort of like, 
that was the the other half of that character. So I don't think you get to see him doing investigations and and helping people and stuff too. You only get to see him running around in the costume. It's sort of like doing a spider movie and then not having him be in college or high school or have no friends outside of the superhero world. That's okay. Yeah. You you can, but should you? And so that they, ends up what they they cut. So it ends up just focusing on just the guy in the in the red suit running around at night and. Then I think that maybe weakens the character a bit. Right. That was the one big difference between the two cuts is that they wound up cutting the whole story of Matt and Foggy as lawyers working on this case with Coolio. Poor Coolio. (laughs) Alas, poor Coolio. He was so good. And they cut him out entirely. He's in one frame of the trailer and then not in the movie at all. In the theatrical cut. I'm I'm sure he missed out on his Golden Globe now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's really a shame. Would have been a fantastic voyage, though, for him, would it? (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's really a shame because uh, Mark Stephen Johnson, you know, in talking about you know what happened that so much got cut, I'm going to read a quote from him. He said, "I felt responsible to the studio, and you know, the studio wants that movie to be under 100 minutes and move like a bat out of hell, and you have to have respect that because I feel responsibility for them to do well and to make money, and at the same time." That's at odds with me as a writer and a fan of the comic at the times, because I love Matt Murdock as the blind detective. And a lot of that story that got lifted out. And that was the biggest criticism of the film, that there wasn't enough story. Yeah, I've actually given that quote a, a lot of thought, right? You know, having to, you know, the original, I think the, the director's cut is about two hours or two hours and five minutes. And then he had to cut about 25 minutes out to get it down to the 100 minute running time. Because at the time, which is, it's comical to think of it now, but at the time, <laughs> the studio you did mean not as think we're on the door of a four hour superhero movie? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, because studios were like, well, audiences will never sit for two hours in a comic book movie. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. we will. Uh, so, um, I mean, heck, Infinity War and Endgame could have been one big solid movie with it, with an intermission. We'd have, we'd have stayed. Yeah. Um, but so when I, I've given thought about what the, you know, the kind of the choice that the, the director made when confronted with this problem and the, the you know, the, the result does create a mixed bag of where you cut out important things, right? You don't, you don't get a sense that he's any, that Matt Murdock is any good as a lawyer. You get the sense in he and Foggy are friends, but it's kind of, you know, there's a little bit of where, okay, I guess they're friends. I mean, they seem to like each other, but you don't get real sense of how important Foggy Nelson really is in Matt Murdock's life. And also, I really think you get a short changing of the Electra uh, romance, right? Mm-hmm. Because their romance is basically they go out on a date, they spend the night together, and then they are apparently somewhat in love, but you don't really get it because it seems to be that didn't it just happen like two minutes ago? Like, why, <laughs> why, why, why is all this emotion, right? And, and so the that's why cut, we they added. cut the love scene. Well, well, right. the, exactly. Well, the director's cut didn't have it. They yeah. added it. Right. They added it for the theatrical release because they had so a short they cut wanted it shorter. But maybe yeah, we exactly. can right. squeeze and, in a couple of minutes. Yeah, and, and the love scene doesn't doesn't <laughs> add right. It actually, right. The romance actually makes more sense the other way, where it's you're longer building up the relationship versus you know having it where they just they got together and hooked up. You know, it was like well, you know, Batman did that all the time, and so, mm-hmm. you know, that that didn't mean he loved him. Really, though, what I think of the the what getting back to the thing, what I think that the. the the choice that they should have made, if I, I, I put myself in that situation, I have to cut this movie by 20 minutes. I would have cut his childhood, mm-hmm. right? Because I really felt that 
all those other aspects of the movie were far more important than his childhood. You could, you could cover, because his childhood really at the end of the day only has the importance of he had an accident, he's now blind, and he has to then, you know, move on, right? And you mm-hmm. could cover that in a Hulk-style credit sequence at the beginning, right? Uh, but, but beyond that, there's nothing really that is important and impactful that is really added to the movie. Well, you know, I would my, my counterpoint to that would be, yes, I would agree with a lot of that, but I don't think you can cut his dad. Like, I think that the father-son relationship, that is really important, not only setting up the kingpin thing, but just that the father was a, a boxer, a fighter, and that, you know, he was killed in front of him, like that sort of, that's, a, that's I think, intrinsic to the origin. But I'm not saying you couldn't have condensed that down to, a, you know, him a five-minute, like, voiceover as you showing a little clips of the thing and then you move on. Yeah. But I think that some of the impact of that you, you get without having seen it because you don't actually see it. Right. Because like, so even in, in this movie, we can break down like that, that part, right. With the, the Kingpin kills his father. Right. He doesn't even know that until the end. Right. So that, so that, to the end of the movie. So that has nothing to do with his, his origin at all. He knows his father was killed at the, you know, at a young age around the corner from where he was. He was a boxer. And then, yeah, that matters some. But, it, you know, at the end of the day, as far as with the movie goes, you could really just cover that. With, he could cover that in a throwaway line. Yeah, my dad was a fighter. Okay. And then we move on, right? You don't need you don't need all of this all this exposition and story of the childhood because it because it's really superfluous to the rest of the movie, right? You know, and so you could just start him out as Daredevil. He's then working through, you know, the, the you give him the case because then you have a better idea of, hey, you know what? He actually maybe is a good lawyer, right? Because in the movie, you don't know, uh, right? And you could you give him the case, you give him the relationships, and you make a fuller movie. And, and the childhood stories, you know, they, they, you know they, were, they were put together in, in a fashion of, okay, well, his father was a fighter. His father did something that was bad. He got in an accident that made him blind, right? But, but other than that, it, it's just not really adding that much. And I think that you could, having the... I think the best product is the whole movie, right? I like that the best. But if I had to cut 20 minutes, I think that you can cut the childhood and you still have a great movie. Okay. I would watch that cut. Daredevil, the ocean cut. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he, he's an adult the whole way. And then he just talks about it. But, um, yeah, they, they weren't ready for that in 2003. Like, we right. have to know. Like, <laughs> You do have some great ideas there, though. I mean... I like the whole idea of doing an Incredible Hulk-style opening credits sequence and just having that there and having enough time to focus on the character in present day, Mm quote-unquote. And I think that's a great idea. But I think also to Kyle's point, it's also an interesting storyline to see that introduction to the character his origin story. And I think David Keith yeah. uh, is terrific as Jack Murdoch. No, I, I agree that the, the, the father son story does have an impact, right? There, there is the aspect of where, um, you know, especially when the father decides he wants to try to turn his life around and, you know, he's been, he, he's basically been a, what was it? He was he an enforcer. So he's an enforcer right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. to collect money for the, for the, for the mob. And then he, uh, you know, then he decides he's going to, Take the tragedy of his son, which is you know, which is an inter- interesting choice. Take the mm-hmm. tragedy of your son instead of 
drinking yourself into oblivion because he was already a functioning alcoholic because he hated himself. But to use that to then turn around to say, I'm going to know, I'm going to improve my life and become the example that I want my son to see. Right. And then when he's, you know, rises up, he comes back to fighting. He's making an honest living. He's starting to become a better person. And then those same influences come back and try to get him to then in essence, betray what he, what he's been working towards with his son, as far as, you know, being a stand up, a stand up guy. And so he doesn't do it and he's then killed for it. Right. And, 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 I, and I could even make an argument that that whole little section could be a nice little movie in and of itself. Mm. However, at the same time as all of that that I just said, I think that it, within this movie, when you look at the whole thing in, in total, if I have to cut 25 minutes, that's the 25 minutes I cut. Because it makes it where the rest of the movie fits and flows in a much better fashion. Whereas yeah. that movie, you could, you could even make that you know, Daredevil 1.5. Like, it's the prequel. <laughs> We're just, you know, have that, have that kid have a bigger starring role and get him, give him a whole movie and let the whole thing, you know, go to, you know, go to when he, go to when his father dies and maybe that's the end or, or, or it ends there and then the ending credits are like, you know, Stick is waking him up and he's 13 to, you know, to start training him, right, or something like that. But. Could be as good as young Hannibal. Exactly, yeah. But, but yeah, so, but I think that it would be better, the movie would have worked better cutting that versus what they, did do you know it's almost a shame that this wasn't made during the mcu era because Mm. they could have even made the origin story uh a one shot that they yeah you know the one shot little films that they put with the blu-ray extras you know what i'm talking about yeah yes no i I do but if this was made during the mcu era they wouldn't have had to cut anything (laughs) that's (laughs) true too yeah touche yeah they're like two hours you got any more exactly I think the other really big criticism was that it's kind of dull, boring, and depressing. What do we have to say on that? Clearly, they did not know Daredevil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this guy who saw his, you know, saw his dad as a forcer, his dad was beaten to death. He lost his sight. He had to grow up in Hell's Kitchen, which we were told is the worst area of the Marvel New York. Uh, you know, the, the, the terrible, horrible things that he's... I was going to say seen, but I will say experienced uh, growing up in that area. <laughs> I see what you did. Plus <laughs> a healthy dollop of Catholic guilt. I mean, there was, you were, there's, there, the only time I think we see Matt Murdock smile is when he meets Electra. Like, mm. the, I mean, he is a dark, brooding character. He is a gothic character. He is a noir character. Like, he was, ne- it was, there's never going to be a happy, sunshine, you know, musical montage daredevil. It's just, that's just not the character. Well, they tried to throw that in with the fight scene on the playground. Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, I think that the foreboding, the darkness really complements the character. We were talking earlier about how this is kind of the Marvel answer to Batman. And I know that this might not have been originally what Stan Lee envisioned for the character, but it works. It works really well. And the opening shot of this movie, to me, is proof of that. Because after those those great opening credits where it transforms the words from Braille into mm. lettering. We have that shot. It's the close-up of the stained glass window. And then you see that trickle of blood camera pans upward to show a bruised and bleeding daredevil leaning against the cross on top of the church, which is reminiscent of, is it, man, now I can't remember. Is it 
Frank Miller's or is it Kevin Smith's? It's Kevin uh, Smith's. Yeah, that's okay. actually that's Guardian, a joke. Guardian yeah. Devil. Guardian okay, Devil. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a Joe Casada image right there. So that that image and I mean it was a great comic book cover, but to see it on the screen was beautiful. And I know it might sound silly of me to say something from the movie Daredevil looked beautiful, but I stand by it. <laughs> oh no, I think that, that I, I, I will. We'll talk about this as we as we get more deep into it. But the reverence that uh, Mark Stephen Johnson shows for the comic books is really, really evident. And a lot of it because even at this time we were used to just like, yeah, okay, comic books. I, I, we got the idea. We're fine. Like, you know, Tim Burton is famous for saying, I have never and will never read a comic book. And he's the guy that did two Batman movies. Okay, that, yeah. you're a filmmaker. Fine. Feel, feel free to gatekeep, Tim. Um, but, <laughs> like, in, not only in, in the images, like, the first, the first major shot we have is straight out of a comic book, which already is a signal to us as comic book fans, like, oh, you're taking this seriously like as an adaptation not as now he's mine like this is my right. daredevil not your daredevil anymore and then totally. like, the, the tons of references along the way i mean like it, it's very very reverential towards it without also and also trying to tell his own story at the same time does it succeed well that's what we're here to find out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think ocean Honestly, I think that with these comments it really made me start thinking of another part of the movie, right? Because I've, you know, kind of said a lot already about what I'm, what I think of the story. But I, I think that, um, you know, part of or at least what I, for me goes hand in hand with it, the reverence that they're having with the comic book character itself. You know, it's a Frank Miller story um, that, that that we're that we're being told here, and then you're right, it opens up right with, you know, that, you know, with that shot. And it really does start to say that, Hey, we're going to really stay true to the comics. Um, but the, I guess to me, what I, when I, part of what I think also to give them a tip of the hat to, or give the director tip of the hat to was the decisions about how they were able to portray the way Matt Murdoch sees the world. Right. Mm, and, you know, yeah, and yes, that, yes, you know, yes. the yeah. scene right after when he's blinded as a child and he's in that hospital room, right. When they start doing the radar effects where it's kind of, it's it's kind of blurry, but you can sort of make things out. It's very dis, you know it's very uh, discombobulating because you don't know like you know with the sounds of the cars and jackhammers and the people that you can't tell that they're not in the room but they're outside of the room and just you know it's kind of how you know to to really demonstrate that aspect of things and to make it where we're going to take a blind character and and bring you into his universe enough to make it where then further on down the road when he starts doing these things that you have a visual idea or representation and can go with how you know how is he seeing you know in quotes right and and is how his radar looks and the, the way they visually portray that and what I thought was really an amazing thing because the you know in the comics a lot of Daredevil is it's in his head, right? What you're what you're reading as a reader are his thoughts, and that's kind of what you're that's what you're using to navigate and go along with with the storyline. And I think that you know that doesn't always translate to a movie unless you want to have a lot of narration, which is hard to do a lot of narration, right? And so uh, I think that they you know stay not only true to the story but also by making this great and wonderful choice uh, allowed us to then kind of be with the daredevil and kind of go with him on the ride and not look at it like, well, how is this blind guy doing that? Right. And so I'm going to use that point right there as a segue <laughs> and let's get to what this show is all about and talk about what is good about this movie. Time to give the devil his due. 
why is this movie worth revisiting? And for me, the number one thing, the very first thing that pops up in my mind is the sound design. And mm. Ocean already mentioned the scene for me, which is the most memorable in this movie, I think. And that is whenever young Matt Murdock wakes up for the first time and he's blind. And the very first thing that happens is you hear this sound, sounds like a bomb going off. And it is frightening, it is terrible, and it turns out it's just a drip from an IV. And then he slowly starts to have all the other sounds from within and without the room, like Ocean said, coming at him. And it's just a bump, it is just a bombardment on his senses and ours, too. The sound design team on this movie did a phenomenal job. Yep, I agree not only with what Ocean said, but with what Ray said, too. Like, because it's the two hand in hand, because it's like you need to have that that sense. And I can honestly cannot think of a better way for them to do the radar sense than the way they did it. And then mm. also that first thing, experiencing that as he's experiencing it, what the heck is going on? Uh, and then trying to, like, distinguish and, and determine it. Because I always think that that's the power they don't really talk about with Daredevil is the fact that he can filter like he has all these answers, but it means that he's doing that all the time. He's listening to everyone's heartbeat at the same time and every traffic and every television that's on uh, at the same time. But he can actually like turns it down and like decide what he's going to focus on. Like, how can he ever have a conversation with a person <laughs> when there's a the thousand <laughs> things going on around? You know, that's that's the true superpower. Focus. Very true. Very true. So there's the sound design. Uh, another thing that I really love in this movie, and Kyle, like everyone's stealing my thunder today. <laughs> no, uh, but Kyle, you mentioned that this is very much a love letter to the comic books. And I think that there are just some remarkable shots and scenes in this movie that look stunningly beautiful. I already mentioned the scene at the beginning of the movie. Uh, I'm also a huge fan of some of the, I, just, I say some of the, <laughs> some of the character designs and mm. the, the production design. And there mm. is so much detail when you look through this movie. One of my favorite details, and it is so small, and I'm probably going to sound really stinking dumb, but one of my favorite details is at the beginning of the movie, whenever you meet Jack Murdoch, is his cauliflower ear. Oh, yeah. And I, I just love the fact that, it, I mean, who cares whether or not he would have cauliflower ear in the movie, but just the fact that they took that extra step with the makeup and did that just to me shows a, a level of commitment that the filmmakers were willing to commit to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I watched a little of the documentary that was put out on the DVD and they had to fight for that costume because you have to remember that for those of you young people listening to this, <laughs> I've become, I've become the elder statesman of geek, you know, kids <laughs> back in my day, we had one Batman movie and we liked it. Um, uh, is that, t that studios were terrified of superhero costumes. They mm. were terrified of them. So they, 
Like, if you watch the first X-Men movie, that's why no one wears their costumes. They're all in black leather because that's as far as they would let them go. And so they talk about in the documentary for this movie, one of the producers says he had a 40-minute conversation with the the heads of whatever, Fox or Marvel, whatever, about the color red. They watched a they watched a five second teaser that they put together of like they basically bend in the costume, like firing mm-hmm. the grapnel, and they watched it over and over again. And then they had to debate, like, well, when we're talking red, is it like bright, like dark red? Like, like and they had to come together to come to what the red would be. So they had to fight just to have him not wearing black leather. So the fact that we even got a slightly red costume for him was a huge victory. So even uh, listening to uh, Mark Stephen Johnson talk about what he had to go through, he's like, you guys don't understand how, how long I had to fight for the horns. Oh, like wow. the people are like like oh you're God, it's not spandex it's not red he's like guys <laughs> I spent four days just getting them to approve horns <laughs> oh man <laughs> it it was a very very different world and and uh, Spider Man I think was one of the things that benefited them because two thousand two oh, sure, yeah. Sam Raimi comes out and says full on costume red blue webs it's the costume and everyone loves it and so they from that they went oh people like costumes and they like costumes. Oh, okay, and so it actually they actually bumped up Daredevil's budget because of that. Uh, you know, going oh maybe uh, maybe maybe these guys are onto something. Wow, could you imagine if they wanted to go with the Daredevil costume that was yellow and red? Yeah, right, right. That's the thing. It's like when Stan talks about it, like I'm like, oh yeah, well you put him in yellow, so yeah, you had a very different concept. And I think it was yellow and shorts, wasn't it? Like, wasn't yeah, they, yeah, they, like, yeah. They went to the knee. Oh, yeah, so it was like Iron Fist, right? Yeah, 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 I think I yeah. think it was short sleeve and short, like it was like a almost like a wrestling uh, onesie. Yeah, you know, and then the yellow, yeah, yellow mask, yellow, yeah, yeah, the, well, very, yeah very well, the red costume is better. Yeah, red costume is better. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Uh, what did you guys think of the other characters and their designs, or just anything about the characters, really? I'll like this. Well, let's let's talk villains. You think that's horrible, don't you? Yes. Let's so do it. I th- I think that you really have uh, of the two villains. So I'll I'll start with uh, Bullseye, Colin Farrell. Uh, Colin Farrell is uh, Bullseye. I think Bullseye is a great choice as a bad guy in the movie. I think that he's, um, you know, from an acting perspective, Colin Farrell's performance is nice and over the top, and mm-hmm. really kind of in the theme of you know what this is about, like a, what a flamboyant bad guy would be in this mm-hmm. universe, right? And the the other part of what I really liked about the the choice of Bullseye is that when you really break it down, it break down the movie. Bullseye is better than Daredevil, right? He's mm-hmm. he's 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 a he's better a fighter, right? Yeah. He's a better fighter. He's a pro. He's you know he's gonna anything he throws you know he throws or shoots or whatever that he's gonna hit. <laughs> you, you know yeah. he's he really is truly a a a great match for our, our hero because it's not like. It's not like one of those, the, a lot of times, especially back in those days, villains were much more of a, well, they're not as good as the heroes. The heroes are just holding back because they're nice people. And, and with Bullseye, he was like, with Bullseye, it's like, no, he can't hold back because Bullseye's better. And so mm-hmm. I think that the, mm-hmm. the, the, the performance was great with it, what they did with them, how he set through the story, the way they executed the different things that, that Bullseye did really worked in the film. And even up to until, like, you can see when, uh, you know, ultimately, when when uh, Daredevil defeats Bullseye, really he is forced to use 
all of his senses to do so. He couldn't beat him. He, he wasn't beating him in a straight fight. Really what he did is he had the ability to hear that there was a sniper, you know, 500 yards away and he was able to move, you know, in, in, in accordance with the bullet to then get it for his hands, right? All of that is really <laughs> taking on all of these extra senses that you have that Bullseye doesn't have because in a straight fight or even in, in you know, in that, you know, when they were in the cathedral fighting, when they're on the rooftop fighting, anytime they fight, Bullseye wins every time. Right, because he's because he's better. And I think that that was a great choice, not only of the villain they chose, but the way they chose to execute it to really demonstrate how good and formidable, really, Bullseye was. Yeah. Right. And people criticize him being like way over the top, and it was sort of like, have you read the comic? But <laughs> there are, <laughs> I mean, obviously the answer is no. But there are different kinds of Marvel villains. If we're just sticking in the Marvel thing, you know, Doctor Doom has an agenda and he has these things he believes. Magneto has all these different beliefs and like he's going to execute them. Bullseye just exists to kill people. Like he's not, he's, he, there's no difficult backstory. There's no, like, they've tried to do that kind of stuff and it just never works because he's just a guy that throws things really fast and likes killing people and that's fine. So yeah. when, so I actually found a quote from, um, Colin Farrell about this, uh, about like wh how he chose to do his portrayal, and he said uh, this, they, this is from uh, Comic Book Resources, so you can find this online. Uh, they say this is at the time, so this is like uh, you know uh, during the press tour. And he's, they say in this movie you're playing an unrelentingly bad villain. Did you work on finding the human side of the villain? Not this time. I mean, I'm a great. I'm not, I'm not going to do his Irish accent, but uh, uh, I mean, I'm a great man for trying to find shades and characters, different layers, and all that BS that actors talk about. I'm a great man for that. But this time was just a chance for me to check my sanity at the door and have a field day. Not worry about a dead father or a prisoner of war camp or finding out who the killer is. Not worrying about anything past or future. Just worrying about being exactly in the now and dealing with it. Bullseye was great. He was so black and white. There were no shades of gray. He was just an insane assassin and derived so much pleasure from his work as a killer. He's like a cat with a ball of thread. The fight with Elektra, that's what I mean. He's on top of the world when he's just having a fight with Elektra and he's just toying with her like she's a piece of thread. Mm. Oh, and then, and then yeah. just as one last thing, because I love the answer here. Did you ever feel like you were in danger of going over the top? Absolutely. <laughs> I thought I was doing it every day and I saw the film and I'm like, oh my God, I'm ridiculous. But you do the work and you do the best you can and hope that someone will think it's okay. <laughs> and you know what? That is to me one of the best things about this movie is that character particularly and the campiness of him. Yeah. Because, and I, granted, I say this with hindsight being 2020 and I'm saying this 18 years after the fact. But this is not a, a a dark villain that is just too serious for his own good. This is not your typical DCEU, you know, like brooding. This is camp, mm -hmm. and it works here. Yeah. It is it heightened is reality. Beautiful. That's what people need to understand, that this is not supposed to be normal the world this is comic book world things are up on everything yeah. and i th i think it's interesting that they let him use his own accent yeah the, for uh, the first time in american movies that was a lot of fun because uh being somewhat familiar with this character so used to him having like this really in your face bronx accent mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was a nice change of pace and it works. Yeah, it was. And it doesn't matter in the movie that he's from Ireland, you know, because, no, no. because he is 
he's an assassin for hire who enjoys killing people. If he's from Ireland or he's from New York, you know, what difference does it make? So, and it, it, it gives you the great opening sequence when you first introduced him, where he's in a bar drinking a Guinness. You have a little bit of House of Pain playing in the background, and he's winning <laughs> right. the darts. It's, you know, that's, <laughs> it, I think, it really adds to everything that he would, you know, to let him speak in his own voice. The he's only like, thing I did not like it as, as we praised the sound department, I'm going to then condemn them on the other hand, is I like the coat. You know, I like the fact that he's got this cool coat because he uses it in combat and stuff too. So, like, you know, you don't know where the hits are coming from because he's also using that. But mm-hmm. every time he swings the coat, they drop in the sound of a rattlesnake. And it drives oh. me crazy because it's so, like, <laughs> obvious. I mean, like, I think a couple of weeks ago on Satmat, they talked about the least favorite sound effects. And there's, um, I remember them talking about, they add the, in Mask of Zorro, they add the lion's roar every time something explodes. And it's like, once you're aware of it, you go, Ugh. And so the same thing, every time Bullseye <laughs> do something awesome into it, and then, like, he'll turn to it and then flip the coat, and they go, Arr. I'm like, oh, guys. Well, now I'm never going to not notice that. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to my world. I've shattered the glass. Yes. You've ruined the illusion. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a cicada. All right. So, <laughs> um, all right. so I guess uh, since we're on the topic of villains, um, <laughs> uh, let's talk about the other uh, primary villain in the movie, which is uh, Electra. <laughs> oh, exactly. You know, I, I I thought she was going to be a villain in the movie, but it turns out not. She was she was not. So, but uh, the king, uh, and we can talk about Letra next. But the kingpin right. to me, when we talk about the main villains, all right, here is really one of my uh, you know one of my two problems with the movie, uh, and and it's um, really with the kingpin. My and that cho- the problem that I had with it is the choice of. Uh, Michael Clark Duncan uh, uh, to be the kingpin, and part and that reason is because he, as an actor, is too likable, right? You oh. know, you just don't you don't ever feel that the kingpin is really all that evil, right? You, you know, and it, and and they don't do enough even in the movie to make you hate him, right? Because if you look at the movie, um, you, you know, what, what does he do? He he kills Jack Murdoch, which you don't even know about until the end. Right, and then he orders the death of Electra and her father, and that's the list. Right, so at no point in time does he do anything through his actions that rises to the level of, oh, well, this is a menace, and only the daredevil, only daredevil can stop him, so he needs to be stopped. Well, he or, did murder two people on on screen. He ordered on a whim. The murder. No, no, he, his guards, his his two right. bodyguards. That's One of them had the, betrayed him, so he kills both of them. That's in the director's cut. Oh, is the director's cut? Yes, oh, okay. that's, that's not true. The that's true. Oh, okay. Yes. So yeah. So it, and, and honestly, I think part of the the you know t- yeah. So part of the conversation with all this to me is I'm I'm just going off with the theatrical release, and then right. we can talk yeah, about yeah. the difference oh, yeah. of the director's cut. Yeah, yeah, but that scene isn't in the that scene is there, but even in so that scene's in the director's cut. But what I, what I'm getting at is that he still doesn't do anything, even if the, even if you would include that, he doesn't do anything where you're like, Oh, he's a massive menace to the city and needs to be stopped. Right. Cause the Kingpin is a mob boss. He has his fingers on all different pies. He's definitely doing things that are, you know, throughout, you know, he's taking advantage of the vices of the city and he's de- definitely hurting people everywhere. Where in this movie, he's really not. And, and then when you compound that to that, they chose Michael Clark Duncan, who I understand why they chose him, right? It was, he's built like what the Kingpin's built like in the comic books. Mm-hmm. He's a big guy. Mm-hmm. He has that nice, deep, burly voice right but part of the problem too is of course you've seen him in other things and he's likable and (laughs) and he doesn't do much of anything in this movie to make you really hate him right and and that and that to me was like well they you know that to me was one of my main problems 
with the movie was I, I like I mean when when Daredevil's stopping Bullseye, you're cheering, you're with him. You, yes, this guy needs to be stopped. When he's stopping the Kingpin, you're kind of like, well, I mean, can't we just like you know maybe put him on probation for a few bits? I mean, he ain't really that bad. <laughs> Right, you, you know, he didn't really do that much, and so that's and that to me was that was my impressions of what I what I thought of the Kingpin. You know, I I totally get that. You know, because at this point in time when this movie came out, I would assume most people's experience with Michael Clark Duncan would have been from the Green Mile, mm-hmm. and which drastically different role, polar opposite. But I would say though that I think that his being in this movie helped it than probably all any other actor would have because i think the problems that you are laying out here are more so with the writing than the actor not and i say that because when you actually break down what's going on in this movie he is in this movie the the blandest guy here he's not doing much of anything he's just there and he's talking and he's technically i guess setting things in motion but things that just seem trivial he's responsible for the death of electra's father he's and ultimately electra and we like you said he murdered jack murdoch but All we really know about this guy is that he's a mob boss. We don't know of anything specific he's doing, you know, within this story, there's no specific plan or scheme that he's trying to get away with that Daredevil has to stop. So it is kind of hard to hate this villain, but I think it's more so because he's not really doing much of anything. Um, I think that, Michael Clark Duncan did a great job because yes, I think you're right that he is a likable guy. He is a likable person. And when you first see him, it's kind of like, Oh, this dude's awesome. And then you see him do some of these despicable things. Uh, especially if you watch the director's cut, you know, Kyle mentioned the scene where just on a whim, he turns around and chokes out his two guards which is a crazy scene. <laughs> but um, I think that it kind of puts puts you on the fence where you don't know what to think about this guy. One minute, he's this charming businessman, and the next minute, he's a raging bull. So I, I think that to that extent, he, he did well with what he had. But I would blame the problems with this character more so in the writing, personally. I would agree with that. I mean, he's he does a great job, like at, for what he's given, but he wasn't given a whole lot. I, I would say that that actually probably would be the better thing to cut, like ha- keep them talking about Kingpin, worried about Kingpin, what's Kingpin up to, and never show him, and basically like keep mm-hmm. it as he's out there somewhere. He sent Bullseye to kill. He did all these things, but we still don't know who he is, and then late, save that for the sequel rather than this way, which they try and like do too much. They're trying to do too much in, in this course of that, it. That is not a horrible idea right there. And um, so, yeah, I, um, I, yeah, I, I agree. I agree that the leveling of, you know, if you're looking for the blame for my, my quib with this, if you were to level it more at the writing than at the acting, I, I agree with that. I don't, I don't want to provide the impression. I think that Michael Clark Duncan is doing a bad job of acting or his performances. No. And I didn't like mean that. to imply that. No, 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 no. I just yeah. think that the problem is you like him. 
right? You, you know, and even even with him doing everything he's doing, you you still just like him. And 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 that to me is the problem is that you can't have a bad guy that when the movie's over, I'm like, hey, let's go out for drinks, right? You know, and so this is so. In, a, in, a, in a way, this is my problem. Whenever Sandra Bullock tried to do gritty crime dramas, I was like, no, sorry, like I don't buy you as a tortured alcoholic detective or whatever like you're you're miss congeniality I'm, exactly. I'm sorry but <laughs> i like like i you're you know, free bush right exactly <laughs> like so, and it's like i know you might hate doing that stuff but you're so good and so like every every sort of like murder by numbers or whatever where it's just like uh, what's the killer doing i'm like oh come on <laughs> you know i also want to say that i love the fact that this is the man they cast as Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, who is traditionally a very large white man. Mm -hmm. And I found this interesting. I discovered that apparently they originally wanted to create the character of the kingpin in the comics as an African-American character. But ultimately, they decided not to because it was during the 60s. And they were trying not, you know, civil, the civil rights movement was in full swing. And they, they said, you know, this probably is not the right time for us to make a character who would make the African-American community look bad in any way, because that's not what we're about. And I think it's pretty cool that, you know, when this movie came out, they, they came back and they put they cast this character as an african american and he did great in the role as a matter of fact he even came back and reprised the role as kingpin in one of the cartoons mm -hmm. i don't remember which one but i think they're all called spider-man so let's just say the spider-man Spider -Man <laughs> something or other <laughs> yeah <laughs> i would really like to see what he would have done mm -hmm. if his character and his character's motivation had been better fleshed out in this movie. Yeah, you get to see just a glimpse of that when he when he says business. It was all just business. Like you get to see sort of his whole expression change. I'm like, oh, there is more there, but unfortunately. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. Rest in peace. So, God, that guy was amazing. Yeah, no, he was a great he was a great actor. I liked him. I, I enjoyed a lot of his work. I'm not the bad guy, kid. Okay, and so so the transition to other characters. So Electra. This is uh she's probably the character that I have the the least to say about as far as what she did, right? I think Jennifer Garner was fine. Um, you know, my 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 vision of Electra is you know of, of a, a dark haired Greek woman, you know that is kind of darker and a bit more brooding than what Jennifer Garner is because she's very you know girl next door, very you know you know, and so it it was a different, uh, definitely different look than what I was expecting when I saw it when I was going to see the movie, but uh, at the same time she does a, a fine job. Uh, she, you know, she does a decent job of, you know, the different emoting and really, I think, is also doing a good job with the material that she's been presented with. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That, you know, that the, because, look, we can, I mean, the playground fight scene, I mean, there's a cuteness to it, but I mean, we can make <laughs> oh, fun yeah. of that all day. Right. Yeah. You, you know, there's, 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 a, there's a lot of that where it's like, I get the idea that you were going for here, but the execution just seemed a bit odd. Right. You know, but that, you know, and so I think that, and her character is the one that I think suffers the most from the cut of the, the uh, director's cut to the theatrical release, right? Mm -hmm. Because in the theatrical release, while she does gain an attachment to Matt Murdock and everything, and then gets upset and then becomes where she wants to then avenge her father's death and everything, which is, you know, it's understandable. Your father just got killed in front of you. You may want to avenge that, 
right? You know, in, in that, but their, her relationship with Daredevil and kind of how she is, you know, really fighting her own demons to then become, you know, kind of like, hey, I can have another person that I'm with. I'm not alone in this, in this world or, you know, alone in the world and I can have a partner and all that. That in the theatrical release doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It seems very ham-fisted and ham-handed, where in the, in the director's cut, their relationship is much more, there's more scenes, more interactions, and that you can kind of see that the the connection for them is much more um, psychological and emotional. Where in the theatrical release, it seems to be only physical. Right. And I think that that's where the character of, of Lecher really suffered from the two different versions. Um, but in, in either case, I thought that it was very well done, not only the leading up to, but getting to the fight with Bullseye, right? That it was, you know, she was you know, competently fighting him, but then also at the same time allowed it to where they demonstrated really two things. One, that Bullseye's a better fighter. And then, you know, two, the, the, you know, her death scene and everything, it, it had a nice dramatic effect and then it set up the Electra movie. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all the better for them. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that one. Um, yeah, I agree. I first of all, I just I just love Jennifer Garner. I think she's fantastic. I, ever since the first episode of Alias, I was like, "Who is that?" Yes. Uh, and so I've had a crush on her since then, and it has not gone away. Uh, and so she she's one of the few people who looks competent doing the things that they ask her to do. I mean, there's there's so sure, many of these yeah, the actresses that they do that can't even throw a punch, and that they keep casting them in action movies. And it's like, oh, honey, you'd have broken your hand there. So Jennifer <laughs> Garner taking her. Um, Dance training, I think, is what she's done. She's done ballet and, and things in the past, and you can see that in sort of how Electra moves. But even when uh, I mean, they had the stunt coordinator that had worked on Matrix and Charlie's Angels, and like he had nothing but great things to say about her because he said she did the work, and that's really what they want to do. Like she really put in the time, and she could handle those sighs like a pro. Like they show, they, there's a the whole thing she talked about how she like basically she was in the marching band, so she did the same drills she used to do, and so she like learned to spin this way, then spin that way, and so when by the time she showed up, you could give her a set of size now, and she can still do them. I think they even wrote them into an episode of Alias just so she can <laughs> show off her size skills eventually. Um, but yeah, I think I think she's great. I I feel bad for her because she was so sort of new to the business at the time. She can, there was one unfortunate incident on the set that you can still see in the final movie. So when she is having her fight with Bullseye, um, mm-hmm. as they're having the big confrontation, and she's and they're getting and Bullseye's pulling her clothes. Colin Farrell thought it would be a really really cool thing if he bit her bottom lip. So in oh. one of the scenes, as they're like really close, he bites I her thought- lip. I and thought then, he was kissing her. Yeah, you that would have been much better. But no, he actually bites her lip. And he does, and then apparently she said, despite her going like, hey, could you not do that? He did it every single take. And now if you watch the movie, you can see her lip is swollen by the time he right. actually gets up to do that because of how many times wow. he kept biting her lip. So like, Colin, come on, man. Like, what a jerk. And then unfortunately because she's, you know, the new girl in the block, she couldn't be the one to say, hey, uh... Is there a, someone who could like stop him from doing this? Because that would be great. Yeah, yeah. So she, so she paid her dues. You know, <laughs> man. Yeah, I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if Colin's ever apologized. I know he's a much a different person now that he was then. This was party Colin at the time. Mm. Like he was notorious Hollywood, going around, you know, the seeing all the sights and doing all the things that Hollywood does. Now he's a much more calm, relaxed person. So I'm sure, like now, he would be like, "Oh, did I do that? Ooh, sorry." You know, I agree with Ocean wholeheartedly on this point because I also agree that 
Electra is this is the one character who suffered the most from the changes made to the film. And it's a shame because Jennifer Garner, I, I have such a crush on Jennifer mm-hmm. Garner. Uh, that opening, the, the scene where you first see her walk into the coffee shop and like Ocean likes to say, the wind machine shot. <laughs> I mean, I dare you not to fall in love with that woman in that scene because that <laughs> takes my breath away. And that scene and also the scene where, and this might only be in the director's cut, I can't remember, but the scene where they're on the rooftop and it starts to rain and he finally gets to see her in the rain because the raindrops are hitting her face. And I think that's they, in the, the, the it's, cut. it's in both versions of the director's cut. Okay. It's a longer okay. scene. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Because then they reprise it at the funeral because that, which is right, a very, right, a right, very right, good right. moment. Because he gets the necklace with the braille. Yeah. Well, okay. then, yeah, then, exactly. then she puts the she puts the umbrella up to stop him from seeing her face. Right, 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 right. That's so like a nice, like, ooh. Yeah. Cold-blooded. But, but that is, to me, one of the better character scenes in the movie because it seems like a genuine, tender moment between these two. And it might even have been the real-life chemistry between Ben and Jen. Who knows? Yeah. But... Um, it worked, and especially for that character. Sorry, J Lo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, they were broken up by then. I think they were actually. I think they were still together at that point because really, they did not. <laughs> we really left the topic of the movie at that yeah. point. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, when we talk about Ben Affleck, exactly. we're going to get yeah, like, into that. Hey, stuff. Yeah, which yeah. really hot woman was Ben Affleck with at that point in time? Yeah, oh, that, so, that, yeah, yeah. I, I apologize if that's the way it was <laughs> taken. I don't mean to be like that. But. Well, speaking <laughs> of hot <laughs> women. But let's feel you bad know, for Ben Affleck. Yes. <laughs> speaking of hot women, let's talk about Ben Affleck. Was that your transition? That was my transition. No, speaking <laughs> of hot women, do you know who almost got this role? I don't. Jolene Blaylock. Oh. Who played to Paul Star- in Star, Star Trek, Trek Enterprise. Enterprise. Yeah. Okay. I would have, and I could totally see that. I yeah. could totally see that. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, that's, that's kind of a... That's a rabbit trail, but I honestly cannot think, I can't really think of that much bad to say about Jennifer Garner in this <laughs> movie. Uh, like, like you guys said, she did well with what she was given, regardless of some of the, you know, action scenes that took place. On and she hates sand almost equipment. as much as Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of leading men, what did we think of our man Batfleck? Ben Hoofleck? Uh, I, th- I think that Ben Affleck did a good job with the role. I think that uh, some of the things that they did early, even early on in the character, I think were um, uh, well done. Like the in the beginning of the movie, they do a uh, they do show a little bit more about the mundane part of being blind. Uh, he seems to kind of uh, portray that pretty well on screen. You know, showing the mundane parts of the you know folding money. Um, you know, you know, there's uh, you folding money, and then also there, you know, they put the cherry on top of the cake with the. Uh, demonstrating the coolest way for a blind man to open a combination door, right? You, you know, and so they ha- they have that scene in there. But I think that, uh, and beyond that, um, he does a decent job as far as being our straight man throughout the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's able to pull off the fight scenes, uh, fight scenes well enough, uh, you know, that he's believable there. His uh, his size and physical presence is also all all believable, and he's also able to um, he puts a pretty good job on trying to capture both ends of uh, Matt Murdock. I think he does a better job at the 
a regular part of Matt Murdock's life, like mm. where Matt Murdock is really trying to be more of a human than, you know, uh, dealing with all of the tortured end of Matt Murdock's life, right? So he's, he does, I think he's better at the first half than the latter, but over, overall, I think he does a really good job. And I think that there's, you know, while you can have, you know, some people have a lot of criticisms of this movie. I don't, I don't really, I didn't see a whole lot that was criticizing his performance specifically. And, and also, I, I, I don't see why you would, right? He, he, was, he was the hero of the movie. He looks like the hero of the movie, and he did, he did a really good job with it. Yeah, he is, he is a good leading man. I mean, that's, that's why I got it. But I think it's also interesting to think of where he was at in his life, because this isn't Goodwill hunting, Armageddon chasing Amy Shakespeare love Ben Affleck. This is Pearl Harbor paycheck Geely Ben Affleck. <laughs> so it, he was not exactly on a, on a hot streak at the, at the time. Uh, I think that he sort of was just on, on, a, on the wane a bit. Uh, before he would sort of have a, a, a phoenix-like rise, like the giant tattoo that's on his back. Uh, so I think that uh, we're, we're kind of seeing him like a little bit, you know, stretching out from uh, the Hollywood system and, and fighting a little bit. I think he's better in scenes with other people than he is on his own. Like the sort of the narration sure. monologue, you know, sort of like even growling at bad guys thing. Yeah, okay. Like it's, it's, all, it's all right. But like him and Favreau are fantastic together. Like... There's such a great chemistry, and him and Jennifer Garner are great together. He doesn't get a lot to do with Michael Clark Duncan because they're mostly just like you know, alpha mailing at each other. But like <laughs> he's but he's really good in a scene with people. I, I find more than like when he's just by himself having to like I have to go. You know those kind of like the the he doesn't necessarily pull off the the tortured hero thing as much as like let's say the name we have not said so far. Charlie Cox can do <laughs> um, uh, that, you know, that, that's uh, he does, but I, but I, I, th I still think he's great. I think he does a great job and I think he's a really good Matt Murdock. I mean, that's the thing is like, as we've seen only two or maybe three, if you count the death of the incredible Hulk appearance when he had the uh, black yeah. spandex, uh, <laughs> he's a, I mean, he's a, he's a really that's good, a, that's a deep cut. That's a dead, <laughs> very deep cut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, from the Bill Bixby show, uh, but yeah, I mean, I the people at the time were sort of, and even even Ben Affleck hates his performance in it too. But I don't really get why. Like, for I think he matched the tone of this movie, which is really one of the things that's hard to do in these kind of things is when you're all making the same movie, and that's I feel like all these people are in the same. Like, you look at something like Jupiter Ascendant, and. The, the every actor in that is in a different movie and they just have to like sort of stitch them together but everyone here seemed to be on the same page which i guess is a a testament to mark stephen johnson true confession time i am not really a ben affleck fan hmm. what? and I, 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 I'm, I'm really not. This Frank, is how we find out how, yeah, frankly this... i find the guy to be annoying i, I find him <laughs> yeah, you think the, you the only somebody. the only role i like him in is in the movie Mallrats because <laughs> I like to hate him. <laughs> oh, you like him as a villain. So even like oh, he's uh, the man to, and dog. Man. I don't want. I don't. I don't <laughs> want to take this down a, a huge tangent. But not, I, you don't like Batfleck. I don't. Okay. But I will say this: uh, I really didn't mind him in this movie. Uh, I <laughs> didn't mind. Wow. That's praise. Damn the fake praise. Go ahead. No, but I on. Apart from the fact that I don't care for the man personally, I really don't have anything bad to say about him in this movie. I, I will say in particular, I do enjoy the scenes where he is basically just living as a single blind man. And we see him living his daily routine. We see him uh, 
getting his money out and folding the tens one way and the fives another way. Mm-hmm. And we see uh, his awesome lock opening skills. <laughs> 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 but he, I, I really don't have anything bad to say about him in this movie. I, I'm only kind of sad because after this movie, he said that by playing a superhero in Daredevil, I have inoculated myself from ever playing another superhero. Mm -hmm. Wearing a costume was a source of humiliation for me and something I would not want to do again. So I feel really bad that he apparently had a really bad experience. I, I, and from the behind the scenes, it doesn't look like it was during the shooting. It seems to be the response that came afterwards that was really uh, that really affected him deeply. Which, like Ocean said, is weird because we didn't really hear that much criticism about him in particular. Yeah, or no. was it you that said that? I don't no, know. not no, him. No, no, yeah, he was, Ocean think... was talking when he's in the reviews. Like yeah. they were. Yeah, they were. Yeah, not a lot of him in particular. I think that there's. Uh, possibly the you know the negative reaction of the movie itself is going to get put, put on him some, and then also mm-hmm. how a lot of people's reaction to this was, well, we can't wait to see see the Electra movie, right? Uh. Instead, instead of uh, we want Daredevil two, we want Electra one. Be and, careful what you and, wish for. Exactly, and now that we now that we've had Electra one, I wanted Daredevil two. Well, this this is also uh, the beginnings of the death of Ben Affleck, you know, movement in in yeah. pop culture. Like, I think maybe he associates it all together because there was a huge period where everyone just decided, oh, no, now we hate you. And they yeah. just turned on him. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and it was like probably the worst time in his life. And so I, I'm i guessing that he associates this with that period, which is the, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to him. He's about to have the worst five years of his life. Uh, and this was the start of it. So while we've talked about Electra and we've talked about Daredevil, I don't want us to transition to the next topic without talking about the fight scene in the park. You're holding back. Yes. Don't. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Because I am, I watch it again and I'm still so confused by this scene. Like, why why is it here? What is going on? It's, it seems like a really bad way to keep a secret identity because you're doing it in front of a bunch of people like out in broad daylight you're you're flipping around and showing i mean i I understand the sentiment of like flirting but the other problem is how does he know electra can do all of these things and also why can electra do this she's the daughter of a socialite like how how can she also do backflips and size and all that kind of stuff. What, what you guys, this, even watching it now, liking the movie, even in the director's cut, even watching it going, what is going on in this scene? Well, you get bored when dad's gone all the time. <laughs> I guess so. I, I, I don't know. I guess I think that the problem of the scene is more the, the way the execution makes you feel, right? You mm-hmm. know, you, you know, you know, especially for those, you know, for us, right? We came, came at it from the comic books end, right? So we know Electra can do those things. We understand you already know enough from the movie without knowing who Electra is that, that Matt Murdock can do these things. And so it's just kind of a, it, it was a weird kind of campy thing, right? You know, and I study even campy isn't the right, it's kind of ham fisted, right? So he follows her around by sense of smell. So you're, you're, you're already on that thin version of our, I'm just going to let that go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So he's already yeah. that way. She recognizes she's being followed. Then she's, and then they have the playground scene thing. And then they start kind of almost sparring back and forth at each other. And then they decide to not hold back. Then for no apparent reason, like 30 third graders show up, 
Right, and I'll start screaming, you know, fight, <laughs> well, fight, fight. They're fight, in a you playground, know. you know. <laughs> but, they're, but they're on the other side of the fence. So Because yeah. apparently the, the, the elementary school kids can't get on that side of the fence of the playground for whatever reason. <laughs> and so, um, know you know, they, they have that and everything goes on. And then, and, and the other, I think the other part of it too is that like once they, you know, even though when they're jumping around doing things on the seesaw and everything like that, it's, it's trying to demonstrate and show that they're discovering the athleticism that they each have in each other. Uh, when when it gets near the end, you know the kids just disappear, right? right? <laughs> you know, and so it's it's, it's you know because it is it's like it's like she says her name, and then like there's a beat, and then they're kind of talking while she's walking back to the car, and you realize oh every kid just left, like they're just gone, you know, and so I think that the for me anyway, the problem to me is the execution. I think the mm-hmm. idea was hey these two people are kind of going to discover their secrets of each other in this interesting different way and just the way it looked and executed just it doesn't it doesn't work as well as it probably should have yeah i think adding the kids just made it that extra level of bizarre <laughs> yeah, you know there's, there's a, yeah there's a lot of weird yeah 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 what would you think ray you know i we are coming across this a lot now ocean where we see things in these movies that look cool, but that's exactly what they are. They're just pure entertainment. Otherwise they make no sense. And I think that's what this is. I think they had something that looked cool. They didn't really have a sensible way of working it in, but they really wanted it in there. They're like, well, you know, sense be damned. Is this their surfing scene from escape from LA? Oh, is it? Is this? Is this that? Either that, or it's their hang gliding scene. You know, uh, the surfing scene from Escape from LA had a very important plot point. How was he going to get to? Uh, st- uh, what is it? Uh, to, uh, the Star of Eddie. Yeah, Map of Star of Eddie. Yeah, how was he going to get to Map of the Star of Eddie if he wasn't on that surf? <laughs> this one, on the other hand, is you know, yeah, it's it's. This is the yeah, meat yeah. cute. It, 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 very, I mean, it, very, it very well could be. It could be that you had to just kind of buy it and go with it, and there was a way to introduce the characters to each other, right? I think mm-hmm. that the problem they were probably trying to solve, and this does it in a quick manner, is how do we get these two characters in each other's orbit, right? Because mm-hmm. otherwise it doesn't – there's not a lot of other crossover, you know? And you have to establish that place. Electra is a, is a superhero. Right, right. You have to establish her abilities and stuff like that, and that she can do things. So, yeah, so I think it just they had to figure out how to cram that in. And, and this is what they got to. And, um, yeah, I think, it, you know, honestly, the scene might have been better if you took the exact same scene, took it off a playground, and got rid of the kids. Yes. Right? Maybe then it's not as weird. Yeah. You know, as it as, as you know, as, as it turned out to be. But well, real quick, uh, I know we got to start wrapping this up, but uh, just two cast members. I'm not going to go into great detail that I, but two cast members that I just want to mention real quick. I have two that I want to shout out too. I'm, I I doubt they're the same two. John Favreau as Foggy Nelson because I thought he was, you know, a great. I thought he was great comedy wise. And also I thought that his chemistry with Matt Murdoch was really good, uh, specifically in the director's cut, whenever they actually get a chance to work together. And the other actor that I want to call out, even though he doesn't have very much to do is Leland Orser. Mm, who oh, plays, I love Leland Orser. I always enjoy to see him. He plays Wesley Owen Welch in this movie. Such a great bad guy. 
in and he, he's always almost always a bad guy, but I, I love seeing him in anything. So it and it's great to see him here. Uh, who did you have, Kyle? Oh, I, I want to still talk about Lee the Northers because I love him so much. Uh, he's one of my favorite <laughs> character actors. Like every time he's in something, he's always so good. I became I was such a a mark for him that there was a movie that he was in where it was it was a like a I won't say the movie the movie because I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Like it was spoiler for spoiler for me, but because it, it was a popular movie from the nineties. Um, in case you watch it again, they did. It was about a detective having to solve a crime, and he has an impediment. That was pretty much most of them in the nineties. And so, in the trailer, they have the killer's voice. So, like, you get, like they show all the different things going on, and then they have the killer going, "You'll never stop me." And I'm like, "Hey, that's Leland Dorser." <laughs> and then I watch the movie, and he shows up in the first five minutes as the orderly, and I'm like, "Oh, look, there he is. There's the yeah. killer." <laughs> Oh, that sucks big time, <laughs> Right? Man. Because I'm such a movie nerd. I was like, yeah, it's like, don't put the killer's voice in there, especially when you're cast Leland Orser. Come on. Uh, no, the uh, the two names I was going to talk about were, first of all, Joey Pants. Joe Pantaliano. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, he did such a good job as, as the uh, maybe slightly dirty journalist. Like, you don't really know what his <laughs> ethics are, uh, but he's sort of the one that is carrying the plot a lot of the time. Uh, and also, a very young, very unexperienced Ellen Pompeo, uh, who would go on to star in Grey's Anatomy, and I believe is still starring in Grey's Anatomy. Exactly. Oh. That show that can never die. Like, hey, she was a really good Karen Page, but yeah. she only had, like, two scenes. Yeah, two scenes, yeah. But no, that... Well, Grey's Anatomy was smart. She got a nice, stable job 20 years Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, man. Everybody dreams yeah. of oh, having goodness. that kind of yeah. stability. Yeah. Uh, and then just because uh, because I'm a Marvel Movie Minute movie nerd uh, and I dig into this kind of stuff, the other two names I want to mention are Shauna Duggins and Ron Searles. Those are the stunt doubles. Because uh, whatever uh, Jennifer and Ben couldn't do, Shauna and Ron could. So uh, nice. they're, they do a ton, a ton of uh, really cool stuff, and they actually have uh, a bunch of cool behind-the-scenes stuff. And, like, oh, and Ron has a huge part in the movie because you remember the scene where you see Daredevil, like, showing off all the stuff that his stick can do, the flip around? Yeah. That's Ron. Yeah. That's not Ben nice. Affleck at all. That's Ron, like, in the full costume. And because the costume is so, you know, definitive, you can't mm-hmm. tell that it's not Ben Affleck because it's just, like, the chin. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, that's him doing all of the little flipping around, nunchucky kind of things. That's awesome. Yeah. As we wind down here on Silver Linings, one of the things that we always try to take a look at as best as we can is what were the filmmakers' goals in making this film and were those goals achieved? And that's kind of a loaded question in this case because we've already talked about the director's cut and how due to bowing to the studio's demands, so much was changed. So... I think that Mark Steven Johnson as the director had a lot that he wanted to do, but I would say that at least for the opening theatrical run of this movie, those goals were not achieved because so much of the story that he intended to tell just wound up on the cutting room floor until the director's cut came out. And then at that point, the film had already gotten all the bad reviews so, I mean, what can you do? Now, you can make the the point that he did achieve his goals because now we do have the director's cut. You know, it's available for everyone to see, and it is a significant improvement. But uh, that's what I think. Uh, what about you guys? I, I think the filmmaker's goals were different. I think that part, mm-hmm. part of the thing about what we're 
uh, talking about with with the difference in the director's cut and the theatrical release was that he wanted to make a movie that would please the studios. And part of all of that is uh, the goal that I think this movie had was to take Daredevil a lesser known character for sure and introduce him to a wide audience and make him basically a, a more known, a more, more, more beloved character. Now the, the movie financially was a huge success, right? You know, they made it for about $78 million and actually I have those numbers right here. I'll just say something on that point. Yeah. They, you know, they, they, the budget on it was about $78 million and it grossed $170 million. It was a huge financial success. Now, the the but what plus I think ancillaries. That, I mean, plus it, you know, two versions of the DVD that exactly, uh, yeah. Plus all, that, 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 yeah, that was that when got, DVDs were making office. money. Yes, yeah, ex- exactly. That's when they were expensive. You know, twenty right. bucks a pop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but I think that the goal is take this character, make him broad, and make him well known. And I feel that they wildly succeeded in that. And I think you can see the success in that not only in the um, you know the common knowledge of this movie, but also that when Netflix was like, we're going to make a Marvel character you know television story character the first one they did was daredevil right mm, right you know yeah, and they yeah. and they used daredevil to introduce the others you know and so i think that that really does show you that they were wildly successful in making daredevil much more of a mainstream character than he was before. absolutely right let's talk about what we thought about this movie what did we rank it how did we review it business it's all that ever is business so for me personally, uh, I use Flickchart, and it, now you might be a little surprised by this because I'm usually the optimist here. This wound up at a 51% on my Flickchart, or on my Flickchart, yeah, 727 out of 1483. But that's only because uh, there are way more movies that I like on my Flickchart than that I dislike. So it's kind of uneven on letterboxd out of a rating of five stars. This is a three and a half for me. And that's director's cut. Obviously. I think that this is a decent film and I think that it has a lot of, it has more good to it than bad parts. Uh, ocean for me, my the flick chart, uh, this movie ranked out 107 out of 409 for me. Um, and so I think that it got to 70%. I believe that, that's the number. Um, the, uh, for uh, Letterboxd, I was in the same boat as you in terms of the three and a half stars. I think that it is a, um, t- to make it to three stars, it's a good movie, a good movie that I will watch multiple times as I have demonstrated by watching it multiple times. <laughs> um, it, it, it is enjoyable. It is not, it is not perfect. Uh, but it but it is a lot a lot of fun to watch. So three and a half stars, and if we we're doing Letterbox, it would have a heart uh, because I like it as well. Hmm. Kyle, what would you give this? I don't use flick chart, so I guess that would be a one out of one. So, uh, <laughs> so it, that makes it a hundred percent. One hundred percent. Kyle loves yeah. this movie. Right. Look at that. I, 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 By the algorithm, that should it. be a five star movie. There you yeah. go. But but it's not. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much with you, Ray. I'm, I'm, I'm at 3.5, and I, just, I give it a heart, too, because I have watched it multiple times. When you guys asked me to be on the show, I was happy to watch it again. I own the regular version and the director's cut. I watched the director's cut. Sorry, sorry I didn't mean to. <laughs> but I just, I kind of like, once you, it's sort of like the, the extended editions of Lord of the Rings. Once you go big, you can't really go back. Right? I just, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it, and I, I think it succeeded at a time that it shouldn't have. 
Like it's it's much for the you have to understand sort of the the era that it came out in. Like you know, we're we're sort of spoiled now, but like the only Marvel movies that had been made are were Blade, X Men, and Spider Man. That's it. Like there was no other ones out there. So this being the fourth of those, that's a pretty good company to be in. I mean, yeah. this same year would see the release of Ang Lee's Hulk. So <laughs> yeah, if you go by like adaptations, <laughs> this it comes out looking pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> Ang Lee's Hulk though visually is amazing, but that's Yeah. That's that's where the praise kind of Yeah. It, it gets it gets harder after that, but visually, man does it work. All right. Well, now comes the moment of truth, our final evaluation, and I'm going to throw it to our guest first. Kyle, do you think this film deserves the bad rap that it gets? Not at all. I think there's way too much people thinking about Ben Affleck before they actually watch this movie. I think Mark Steven Johnson was a fan who fought hard for as much as he could and made pretty much the one of the best fan films ever. Uh, tried to put all of his favorite moments uh, from his the comic books that he loved into the movie. Uh, didn't always succeed, but I think there's a lot of heart in this movie, and I think there's a lot of fun, and people need to give it a, a second chance. Ocean? I'm just going to say no, because I cannot frame the reasons for no better than what Kyle just said right there. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, I'm a big no too. And I think the number of times I have bought this on disc mm-hmm. is just proof. I think I've bought it on DVD twice and Blu-ray once. I believe I'm there too. And I believe I bought the digital version as well. <laughs> so there you go. So this has been the Silver Linings treatment of Daredevil. Kyle Olson, thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, is there anything that you want to tell the listeners about? Uh, well, first of all, it was an absolute pleasure to be here. This was super fun. I like talking about uh, movies that uh, I like and uh, don't have to defend, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> like I don't. Sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, Daredevil's dad. I'm in the corner, like like the only way out about Daredevil. Um, but yeah, so if you if you liked what you heard, and I don't know why you would have, uh, you should check out the Marvel Movie Minute. We're going to we're. As you hear this, we are actually have launched, so we are discussing Iron Man 2. So if you want to hear my feelings about Jon Favreau, you'll be hearing it for like the next like 200 hours. So no, no they're not hour long each, they're like 15 minutes long each. But uh, So we, we're going to get deep into uh, every little bit we can about Iron Man 2 uh, and everything that goes along with it. So if you want to come along for the ride, uh, we'll, we're happy to have you. And it's not just me. I have a co-host as well, so you know. You won't have yeah, to hear but, this voice. But, but you're, you're the important one. If you're, if, well, if, I mean, if, I'm here, so if, clearly if, I am the exactly, important one. Exactly. We, 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 we looked at the Marvel movie minute and said, which host <laughs> is the important one? And that's the one we invited. <laughs> and, 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 and Rob also said no. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're supposed to say that. Yeah, yeah. You can bet we'll be listening to Marvel movie minute. Ocean, this has been great with you as well. And uh, it was great talking about this movie again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, I re- really enjoyed it. And I, I think I'd also uh, personally th- thank Kyle for uh, joining us to discuss uh, a, a movie that is uh, much maligned and very much so should not be. This has been Silver Linings, part of the next real family of film podcasts on TrueStory.fm. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and that we may have even inspired you to give this movie a second chance. If you'd like to get more involved with the Next Real community, 
Visit thenextreel.com slash membership. For just a dollar a month, you can become a one reeler and join our online community in our Discord server. And for a few dollars more a month, become a two reeler supporter and join us for show live streams as we record, early access to shows in your very own personal podcast feed, and access to the super secret member channels in Discord. Plus, you can now support with a single annual donation at either level. Thank you to everyone who's joined us and to all who are checking us out. Your support allows us to keep producing and growing the next real family of podcasts here at truestory.fm. See you in the next episode. I love the conversations that so many of our hosts have had on their shows. Steve and JJ on Trailer Rewind, Ray and Ocean on Silver Linings, even Tommy's short-lived No, No, Wait, Hear Me Out. And so many films they've discussed started out as a book, a play, or even a TV series. Well, now you can support our whole family of podcasts by using our new Originals page to buy the original source material used to inspire films covered on our shows. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these fantastic conversations. It's a wonderful way to support the show. Producing these podcasts week after week require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, try using our originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy the book, play, video game, movie, etc. upon which the movie is based. Original material for trailer rewind movies like If Beale Street Could Talk, The Goldfinch, Aniara, or The Two Faces of January. Or Silver Linings movies like Repo Men, which was based on the repossession Mambo. Plus, by using those links to buy books, Amazon and Apple show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals. It's a fantastic way to support the show and find a great book to read. That's right. Head over to thenextreel.com slash originals to find your next read and get started today. (laughs) 